Bounty hunting is a complicated profession. Don't you agree? Joanna, we need to talk about that picture behind you. I love it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. The Star Wars picture behind you. Oh, you yeah. leaned over and I saw it. I was like, oh, okay, girl, I see you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have all my Star Wars stuff up yet, but it will be soon. I'm getting, I'm still getting my office together. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. I'm Johanna. And I'm Rosie. What have you been up to since last time, Johanna? I snuck down to Universal Studios in Orlando this past week and uh, rode a ton of rides, got some sun, watched a bunch of action movies with my son, introduced him to such classics as Fast and the Furious 5, which I guess is Fast 5, and Shanghai Noon and Wild Wild West. No, so, you were supposed to wait on Wild Wild West. You asked us to do that one. I know, I know, but I'll watch it again. It's a real trashy classics, but uh, yeah, had a fun week. Rosie? We've been uh, introducing our kids to the old Eddie Murphy classics. <laughs> We've been having a lot of fun with that, you know, movies that they haven't seen yet, like Coming to America, we watched the old one and then we watched the new one. So that was kind of fun. I watched Muriel's Wedding from 1994. All I knew was that it was like Australian and that the music of ABBA features prominently in it. I'm not a disco fan. I'm not a, really a fan of that kind of music. And so I was always kind of wrote it off as being like super cheesy musical-like. And I thought maybe it was going to be a little like um, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, a very, you know, fluffy romantic comedy. It's not that at all. It's not really like any other movie that I know of. So I enjoyed it and I would definitely give it a thumbs up. It does have its cheesy moments. It does have its ABBA lip syncing, you know, to Dancing <laughs> Queen, you know, kind of moments. Like you'll get familiar with all of the ABBA classics. <laughs> nice. But anyway, okay, enough about that. We are going to be talking about what this week? We're talking about The Mandalorian season one. Right. So The Mandalorian came out in 2019. Basically, the idea was pitched by Jon Favreau, who had this great idea for a Star Wars thing. And I think he was working on one of the Iron Mans. He was working on something Marvel at the time. And the series is basically a bunch of Marvel people, now that Disney has the rights to Star Wars, working on Star Wars. So you get the Marvel version of Star Wars. Before we start, I want to say that I am a huge Star Wars fan, or I was as a kid. I saw it in the theater at seven years old or something, <laughs> and um, I loved it. I was already a science fiction fan, but what people who didn't grow up in that time probably don't really understand is that with science fiction, you usually either got good stories or action with semi-decent special effects. But honestly, special effects was terrible in both cases. 
and the science fiction that dealt with really esoteric concepts were incredibly dry. And so for the first time, you got a movie that had like philosophical, the force and all of that to it, but also had really good, it was just fun to watch and had really good special effects. It was, pardon the pun, but it was light years ahead of anything else at that time. And it just was such a shift. And people who've grown up when, with special effects always being this good don't really know how much of a jump. It was a bigger jump than the jump we've had to CGI. Anyway, I was I loved it. I loved Star Wars so much. As a matter of fact, I recently saw, I think when The Last Jedi came out, an issue of Entertainment Weekly where the editor mentioned me in the beginning as oh, very cool. being a huge Star Wars fan. He and I watching Star Wars films together when we were kids. I had the Star Wars bed sheets. I had the bed sheets in, into my 30s. I, <laughs> I, I don't know what happened to them, but I had them all the way into my 30s, which shows you how big a Star Wars fan I was. I skipped work to go see the prequels. I stood in line. My sister was making fun of people who were going to get busted by their boss for calling in sick to see The Phantom Menace. And then, boom, there I was right there on the news, having <laughs> called in sick <laughs> so that I could like, and I was like right at the front of the line with my friends. And I was super disappointed with the prequels. And then I had, again, I was hopeful that we were going to see good Star Wars movies when the J.J. Abrams trilogy kicked off with The Force Awakens. And again, I was disappointed. And it got to the point where I was about ready to say I'm no longer a Star Wars fan. Because Ooh. people, when you say you're a Star Wars fan, they assume you're a fan of everything Star Wars. And I just wasn't anymore. I, I felt that every sequel, it's felt not like Star Wars, like the prequels. They, they feel tonally different. They use CGI. They just don't feel like Star Wars. But at least the prequels broke new ground. I felt that the next trilogy that starts with The Force Awakens tonally felt like Star Wars, but it just felt like a retread, like it didn't break any new ground. I thought that they were never going to recapture the magic of Star Wars until I saw The Mandalorian. And now I can say I am a fan again because this has both, in my opinion, what is tonally like Star Wars and breaks new ground. Johanna? So... I agree with the idea that the new uh, series, Force Awakens, Last Jedi, and Rise of Skywalker is definitely a retread of the original trilogy, but seeing a woman at the center of that story makes it still vital, makes it still important. I, I can't stress enough how being a huge Star Wars fan and also not necessarily seeing women in that story. I mean, in the original trilogy, Princess Leia is pretty much the only female character. And then we get a little bit of Mon Mothma and that's it. <laughs> this is important. Like it's a retread, but it's still valuable to put people of color and women in that story and then show it again. I agree and disagree. I agree with what you're saying from a philosophical standpoint. I disagree in that I don't think the trilogy adds anything new, but Rogue One does. 
So if you want something that has a female protagonist, I'd say skip this new trilogy and just watch Rogue One because Rogue One actually does add something. All right. Well, I will, I will agree with you there. Rogue One definitely has a leg up over the new trilogy for sure. Eric, I know you have maybe just a couple of years on me, but I also grew up uh, in the 70s and 80s. I saw all of the first Star Wars movies when they first came out. My dad was a fan. The first Star Wars movie that was released, I saw it on the roof of my parents' old Chevy in a drive-in movie theater that doesn't exist anymore. As a girl growing up in the 70s and 80s, usually the girl in the cast was like a token character. You know, she was there to be more inclusive, but it really wasn't more inclusive because she would still typically do the female roles of taking care of everybody, you know, cooking for people, making sure, you know, taking care of the sick people and stuff like that and not really fighting so much on the forefronts and being a main character. That being said, Princess Leia was my absolute hero. So was Wonder Woman. Those were who girls grown up in the 70s and 80s and that were nerdy like me had because we didn't have anybody else to really look up to and idolize and play pretend with our friends with that, you know, actually felt like, okay, cool. I don't have to play the Wookiee or R2-D2. I can actually be the girl, you know, (laughs) which was always nice. We'll go in episode Mm. order, but I want to lay down a ground rule here for the purposes of this discussion. Mm -hmm. We're going to forget anything after Return of the Jedi because that's where this is placed in the series. And it also keeps with our spoilers rule. I kind of held off on the Mandalorian. I didn't want to be disappointed and I wasn't. I really enjoyed it. I love the catchy kind of almost one-liner humor that's always been prevalent in the Star Wars movies during their humorous moments. You know, like when the Mandalorian passed on the first taxi because a droid was driving it. <laughs> and then the next, the next one, uh, you know, that came along was a piece of crap falling apart and stuff. It's like, well, that's what you get. You know what I mean? That's kind of what you get. And <laughs> But, you know, that's when he was first assigned care of the child and, and when the story began. And it was a great start to the series. And in every episode I watched, I'm always looking forward to what's going to happen next. One of the things that I immediately appreciated about The Mandalorian was returning to the genre blend of the original trilogy, which, you know, speaking of things that were kind of missing from the prequels and the later films, it was straight sci-fi action and was missing that blend of like, it's a samurai film and a Western. And the flavors of both of those genres really come through in The Mandalorian, even as early as the first episode. Each episode seems to go out of its way to play up one of those particular kinds of tropes. In this one, there is a group of warriors who have customs and sacred metal to make their weapons out of felt very much the kind of reverence towards weaponry that samurais have. But then also the feeling of the saloon or tavern that the Mandalorian goes into to get his bounty hunting gig felt very much like a saloon right out of a Western. So it was great to have both. So one of the things I liked is that they do what I think Star Trek fails at, which is you had this great original Trek series where they met all these different aliens and different alien worlds and stuff like that. And then they never went back to any of them, like except for a SETI Alpha 6 and 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 running into Khan again, it was almost like with Next Generation, it's all different stuff. And I kind of had that problem with mm, 
I, uh, I'm going to break my rule here. I kind of had that problem with the latest trilogy because, you know, they would have like, okay, we're going to have a desert planet and it looks exactly like, like Tatooine and it's got everything, but it's not Tatooine. It just looks exactly like Tatooine. It's like, couldn't you make the sand purple or do something to make it different? But I like that they revisit stuff that's already happened and show us more like mm -hmm. IG-11 appears in Empire Strikes Back when on the Death Star they're having the meeting of all the bounty hunters. You know, Boba Fett is there and then there's this bounty hunter droid. I think they just called it a bounty hunter droid at that point in time, plus the other bounty hunters. But now we get, they brought that back. And I think this is a real tribute to Favreau's writing on this is that he keeps giving you new stuff and throwing in a bit of the old not imitating the old like we've seen mm -hmm. with some of the other star wars stuff but giving you a return to moss isley a return to these places the last thing i have to say about chapter one is i when i saw the who the bounty was on i was like wait until the internet gets a load of this baby yoda this is gonna be a meme this is <laughs> this is definitely gonna be a thing well, I'm glad you brought that up. It is especially a meme in the indigenous community, which I was really surprised to discover. But there's a whole community of indigenous who have adopted Baby Yoda as an indigenous character. And you can actually find some really great documentaries that sort of explain the connection. There's a documentary called Dawnland, which talks about how even up until the 1970s, Native American children were stolen from their homes or more or less kidnapped and farmed out to other families to be adopted and assimilated into our culture. And so a lot of folks in the indigenous community have latched on to Baby Yoda as sort of the symbol of like a foundling who has been ripped from his own home and is now going to be taken by the empire and forced to assimilate, forced to be part of their operation. And also as a character who is young and also wise, you know, someone who's carrying ancient wisdom, but also has their own path before them. So if you look on the internet, you can see all sorts of really great bead work that's being done around Baby Yoda and some really interesting paintings. It's very cool. It's a meme, but it's it's also a symbol. How interesting is it that in the same year that we had babies in cages on the border that were being adopted out by U.S. residents and being forced to assimilate into our culture here? Now that we're on the topic, the second episode is called The Child. And now's where I have to mention that it literally has the baby cart. Okay, we've been, <laughs> we have been watching baby cart movies for a while now. Okay, it hovers. It has whatever kind of hovercraft technology that land speeders have, but we literally have the baby cart. Where was this when our kids were little? Because this would have been amazing just to have that floating around right next to me in arm's reach, <laughs> you know, when I'm trying to take care of a million things. Like, where was this when I was raising my kids? <laughs> I think chapter two is where you really get to see the child for the first time. You get a glimpse in the first episode, but in the second episode, it's apparent that the child is a puppet and not mostly computer generated. I think it made all the difference in terms of making this character 
feel real. You know it's a puppet intellectually, but it's a physical thing that you could see and touch as opposed to CGI, which you know might look more real, but isn't. And you and your brain knows it's not. So second episode, I was so excited to see Baby Yoda was a puppet, like huge win for the show. My very first note is very reminiscent of Lone Wolf and Cub opening. I mean, they're walking in the desert together. (laughs) (laughs) Next, we'll talk about chapter three, which is called The Sin. I thought this was one of the weaker episodes, but weaker relative. It was still awesome. And this one, he goes back to rescue the child from the Imperial Stronghold. I like the way this references the original series in really subtle ways like check the perimeter you know (laughs) and um, and stuff like that Uh, i did have in the notes why would the other mandalorians bother to help him but it becomes more apparent as the series goes on so i will leave that off eric this is the way (laughs) this is the way this is the way Anyone have any notes? Uh, I have spoken. (laughs) (laughs) Is this a good time to break in and just talk about Werner Herzog? Now, you know, this is kind of the midpoint. He shows up in the first episode, the third episode, and, and then towards the end. But, I mean, I have to say, every time Werner Herzog gets a chance to act on screen and not just behind the camera, I am utterly captivated. And I'm going to break in just with a funny personal story. One of one of the most cognitive dissonant moments I've ever had is at the Telluride Film Festival. They celebrate Werner Herzog's birthday every year because he's you know he's got a theater at Telluride named after him. He's you know a major fixture at the festival, and his birthday's right around Labor Day when the festival happens. And watching Werner Herzog eat an ice cream sundae is just I I think. <laughs> my brain broke and never recovered. <laughs> so Herzog is awesome. And I was going to wait until episode seven. So I'm going to jump the timeline here since we're talking about Herzog. Did he write his own dialogue or does everything just sound cooler when Herzog says it? Like, for example, and I'm skipping ahead to episode seven for a second here, chapter seven. I do a terrible <laughs> Herzog, but I'm trying to give you the idea. Can I offer you a libation to celebrate the closing of our shared narrative? (laughs) It's like, it's like who, what, who talks like that? But it sounds awesome when he, he does it, you know? Yeah. The fourth one, Bryce Dallas Howard directed Sanctuary. Chapter four is one of my favorites in this first season. And some of it is because Mandalorian does a really great job of rewriting some of the tropes of the Western genre when it does this genre blend. And in this episode, you get sort of a Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven kind of plot. But instead of it being like all white villagers in the town, it's really more like a blend between an indigenous tribal community and the sort of prototypical Western town of families living on the outskirts that you would see in a classic Western. They do a great job of achieving this blend, but they also do a great job in this series of putting indigenous actors in the forefront of some of these episodes. So in this one, chapter four, 
Julia Jones, whose mother is white, but her father is African-American and Choctaw and Cherokee, I think. Um, so she, you know, as an indigenous actor, kind of, you know, represents the village and sort of recast indigenous people, even within the Western genre, as they are the family center, they are, you know, the townspeople, they are the innocents that need to be protected rather than the outsiders the innocents need to be protected from. Well, yeah, that's definitely the story at the heart here. But basically, for those who play World of Warcraft or have read Tolkien, we're talking about an orc raid on the elves. That's what this is. <laughs> this whole this whole episode is an orc raid on the elves. But since we talked already about having female role models, it's 2021, so we're going to avoid her off-screen persona, but Gina Carano's character, like, how badass is Cara Dune? Like, I mean, that was the highlight of this episode. Yeah, she me. was awesome. That initial fight scene where it's clear that Mando, who we've seen kick ass all over the place, is matched by this woman ex-soldier. That was a highlight, seeing, seeing a female character get to be such a badass. Sadly, mm -hmm. at the time we're recording this in 2021, we've heard she's been fired from the series. But, okay, I have a bone to pick with this particular episode. The one thing I did not like about this episode is that there were too many Terran-like species. There was moths fluttering around the lamps and lanterns. There was krill, shrimp-like things. They chased little frogs that looked exactly like frogs and jumped like frogs, moved like frogs, looked like frogs. So I was just like, there's too many Earth-like animals. For all its faults, no other Star Wars did that. You know, there, there were things that were similar, like the mudhorn, but uh, like the frogs in this, the shrimp in this, and the moths in this looked just like moths, shrimps, and um, the shrimp were blue the shrimp were bright blue there are blue shrimp in the real world that we live in that blue i no, i uh, i i gonna cross shrimp off your list you, you get frogs and moths okay yeah. <laughs> all right well i'll still say too close anyway but it's a minor nitpick and it was really cool to see the fight at night there's more than one battle but the big battle at night is awesome yeah to tag onto that one of the things i loved about this episode was making atsts scary again mm -hmm. i mean they weren't ever really that scary in the original trilogy but in the same way that rogue one succeeded at making darth vader super terrifying again after seeing him a little too humanized in the prequels this did a great job of taking something that seemed easy to defeat you know a band of ewoks can take it down with a variety of you know wood related traps and mm -hmm. and to turn it into something that could decimate an entire village and you were terrified of and it comes out of the mist like a t-rex and it's amazing yeah it when it stomps its foot on the on the ground it's like goosh, you know you see a whole earth shake and, and it really gave you a, a full scope of like oh my god like this thing is scary it could just take it take a whole village out with one step like this is scary it reminds me of south sudan or wherever and the people there are armed with literally sticks and then they, the the warlords get a hold of AKs 
and machine guns and stuff like that. That's what this reminded me of, where modern firepower is brought to backwoods areas that haven't experienced it yet. Kind of the conflict that happened in the American West before Native Americans had guns, you know? Anyway, okay, long tangent there, but let's talk about episode five, The Guns. Speaking of guns, it's called The Gunslinger. I mean, it doesn't get any more Western than that. <laughs> this is the episode where the Mandalorian realizes he wasn't the only bounty hunter or assigned with the task of finding the child. And this is when he realizes that he's basically going to constantly be on the run until this is fixed. He, he has he has several different encounters with different bounty hunters and and uh, and Cora Dune certainly helps him with that as well. And she was a total complete badass. You know, she kind of helped him realize, like, this isn't going to stop. This is just going to keep going. So you're going to have to just stay on the run. And in order, you know, to protect the village, you're going to have to get the hell out of here. This episode has a couple of things that I love in it. One, they don't go to a desert planet that looks exactly like Tatooine. They go to goddamn Tatooine, you know? Right. <laughs> and so we get to see Banthas and, and Tusken Raiders, and we get to see all that stuff again. But also, you want to talk badass females ming nawen is in this and i absolutely love her i'm a fan of her in agents of shield i've been a fan of her since mulan the woman has to be like almost 60 years old right but she still like can do like kung fu and when you think of ming nawen you cannot imagine her any way except in skin tight leather kicking ass like that's exactly who she is this is one of the things that i see a lot of potential for with star wars is we're pretty soon, we're not just going to have action Star Wars. We're not just going to have Western samurai Star Wars. We're also going to have rom-com Star Wars. We're going to have every genre you can think of. And seeing Amy Sedaris, you know, as this hysterical backcountry mechanic, it was such a great character and so wonderful to see a woman get a really juicy bit part like this. And so juicy that... She's going to have to come back, but it's, I, that was my highlight of the episode. Okay. So next we're going to talk about episode six. The, the prisoner. prisoner. Yeah. The prisoner. This um, was a fun episode. All I have to say is former Imperial sharpshooter. That's not saying much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had problems with this episode. I'm, I'm curious to hear whether your your problem with it is actually the thing that I love the most, which is I feel like this can stand alone. It was such a gripping prison rage storyline that had almost nothing to do with the rest of the season, but it was so well executed. It was thrilling. The camera work was fantastic. I loved this episode, but also felt like it could have been its own hour and 20 minute long movie. <laughs> it had nothing to do with the rest of what was happening, but just so well done. I really enjoyed it. It had the old flip the script, which is always a, a, a fun trick for me in entertainment where you think something's going to go one way and the, and the character has another plan in mind and, and like flips a script on them and, and gets out of the situation. And, you know, which is basically what the Mandalorian did. He gets suckered into this job which come to find out was a ploy to basically put him in prison. And then they didn't even know that he had the child. So that was just an added bonus 
because then they could have collected the bounty on the child, right? So it was interesting how the Mandalorian took that situation and made it work out for him. And in the long run was able to escape the situation and protect the child. Can we also talk about Bill Burr and how good he is at, at acting like a complete asshole? I love it. I love it. And I love that he was in this. I was I, so I excited, feel, excited to see him in that. I feel, <laughs> I feel he's taken the niche that used to be carved out by Joe Pantoliano. Remember when we talked about him in Matrix? In the Matrix? Mm-hmm. That, that kind of skeevy dude. Like mm-hmm. is now that guy. You know? Yeah, yeah, he's really good. He's I feel like he's not as sleazy, but he is definitely really good at being that asshole. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's always that asshole. Yeah, he's that asshole. Yeah. He was def- he's definitely really good at playing that asshole, and he's that asshole in Star Wars now. You so- know, <laughs> just to tag in, like there's something something about you describing Bill Burr that way that made me think of Han Solo, actually. You know, like that in some ways this episode reminded me a lot of A New Hope in terms of like there's a band of you know people who aren't supposed to be there and they're breaking into the prison that's run by the established government and they're all kind of they're kind of a motley crew of people and Bill Burr is sort of the Han Solo of the group and mm-hmm. I don't know Mando is Obi Wan Kenobi but it's you know there's kind of an interesting dynamic getting to see the New Republic as an established authority that we don't get to see anywhere in Star Wars. I mean, it doesn't show up in the new trilogy, which I know we're not supposed to discuss, but this is a new thing, being able to see the former rebels represented as the establishment. And Bill Burr is great as the Han Solo stand-in. This was one of the critically least well-received shows. And the reason is because of what Johanna was talking about, where it's like standalone and a lot of the criticism is come on get on with the story all i have to say is did none of these people ever see breaking bad or game of thrones there were tons of episodes where it's like oh you know what's going on here you know (laughs) that is not my criticism of the show i actually like that aspect of it my problem was there was just a little too much double crossing going on where i'm like well if you don't trust each other that much then how can you possibly work together why did everybody like, oh, and then they cross, like, then he double crosses his sister, and then this person double crosses that person. Uh, why bother paying him if you're just going to kill him? Why not just keep the money and kill him anyway? You know, why they keep double crossing each other and after they've double crossed each other and like again and again and again. And I'm like, okay, enough with the double crossing. We get it. You know, that was my problem with the, with it. Mm hmm. I think he went into it knowing that he didn't trust them from the beginning, though. It's not like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to trust you. Oh, no, you double-crossed me. I sort of got the sense that it was like a swap that he was walking into, and it was going to be like this, for sure. But they even double-cross each other, you know? So there's just too too much double-crossing for my taste. But anyway, that's episode six. Episode seven is called The Reckoning, and I'll start. Cara Dune is back. That was amazing. And then, speaking of Breaking Bad, Giancarlo Esposito as the bad guy, he's becoming the go-to bad guy of the 2010s. You know, or the, I know. <laughs> or speaking of Breaking 20, Bad. <laughs> now the 2020s. Like, he, now we get Gus Fring in space. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Okay, who wants to take this? I can. So... Mando's offered a chance to keep the child and clear his name, 
which ends up turning into a disaster. And towards the end of the episode, as part of that disaster, Quill is sent with the child. Mando keeps the bassinet. They go to bring the child, and it's basically a double-cross moment. Quill actually has the child. He's escaping with the child back to Mando's ship. It was a really cool episode. It left me thinking, and, and I really enjoyed watching it. Seven and eight, I think we should talk about together because it's kind of mm -hmm. like one seamless narrative. But to sure. pick pick out some things from Seven that I liked in particular, the moment on the ship when Baby Yoda force chokes Cara Dune while they're arm wrestling, seeing it was chilling. There was sort of this sense of like, whoa, <laughs> like there's something else going on here, which was a really interesting moment that I was happy to see. And then the other thing is the attack by Minox in the desert. Like, oh my God. Like, Minox you know, are back. <laughs> Minox are back and they're huge. They're dragons. They're not, they're like, they're just terrifying. And that was just a, another awesome callback. I want to read a very long passage from, from Seven that I think kind of sums up the attitude of the season towards this post colonial critique of the empire and also of the United States in the real world. Herzog starts this long speech. It immediately follows the, may I offer you a libation to celebrate the closing of our shared narrative. And I'm not going to do the accent because otherwise you won't understand what I'm saying. But he says, it is a shame your people suffered so. Why did Mandalore resist our expansion? The empire improves every system it touches, judged by any metric, safety, prosperity, trade, opportunity, peace. Compare imperial rule to what is happening now. Is the world more peaceful since the revolution? One of the things that I had been waiting for for such a long time was for someone to raise this question of like, why is the empire so bad? Or to, to try to get that imperial point of view that is beyond just Palpatine's like, you know, self-obsessed, power-hungry, I've got to rule the whole galaxy kind of mentality, but like, what's in it for everyone else in the empire? And to see that post-colonial critique, to see this representation of, oh, the empire is the United States, the empire is us. We're the ones taking over and interfering with all of these other territories to try to make their culture more like ours. I cannot hear that speech in Herzog's thick German accent without thinking of Nazis. I mean, what this to me sounds like he was channeling the Nazi point of view. It's like a new world order. It's like, here's what you get with the empire. You get order, you get law. So that to me is what that speech meant or sounded like. It was the voice of, in Dungeons and Dragons terms, the voice of lawful evil. It was, you get law. You know, yeah, it's evil, but you get law, you know? Well, and I'm glad you brought in Dungeons and Dragons because I D &D? I think that- <laughs> Oh no, um, who was that? That's my son in the background. We're gonna need a, we're gonna need a release from him. <laughs> <laughs> um, that Moff Gideon is a perfect chaotic evil character. Just like, you know, shooting his own men. There's this really great conversation with the stormtroopers at the, stormtroopers at the beginning of episode eight to segue into their- where they're hanging out, just shooting the breeze, and one of them says, he just killed an officer for interrupting him, so this could take a while. It's, 
Well, I'm not going to get killed for interrupting you, but I have to say, as long as you brought up that scene where they're hanging out, this is one of my favorite scenes. Taika Waititi directed this, and I think he probably threw this in there. But they're, they're hanging out in the desert on speeder bikes, and they're bored and they're like shoot at one point they're doing target practice against a little piece of debris like it's like three four feet away from them and they can't hit it and i'm like this just encapsulates stormtroopers right there (laughs) that was so funny that was such a great nod and and kind of just a great fantastic inside joke for every star wars fan out there i was literally i really was laughing out loud when i I saw that i was like no they didn't they did not (laughs) (laughs) it's like literally like four feet away and they can't hit it (laughs) yeah taika watini another indigenous great collaborator in this show i mean is such such a force for good in terms of making mandalorian what it is and so great as ig11 i mean just awesome okay so i have a couple of nitpicks with this episode one was the color grading off did that seem did anyone else notice that it seemed to me like the color grading was off particularly in the scene outside the bunker anyway Something and that, that's a real video geek nit, nitpick. Maybe someone uh, of our uh, listeners can let us know if anyone else thought that the color grading seemed off in that scene. Moth Gideon, when he has them trapped in the bunker, I, I still don't understand why he gives them until nightfall. Like, why? You could just waste them right now. You know they don't have the child in there. Maybe he was tired. Maybe he just needed to take a break for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> he want to wait till nightfall. He's like, whatever. I'll just set it out, and maybe he fights better at night. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go with chaotic evil on this one. This, yeah. you know, this is behavior where he's, you know, on a whim. It's like I don't know. Maybe I want you alive so that I, you can, you know, help me make the child do what I want. You know, he's got a whim, and then the whim's gonna go away, and he'll shoot them. And he tells them this up front, where they're like, "How can we trust you?" And he's like, "You can't. All I will do is act in my own self-interest at any given moment. So good luck." <laughs> okay. Now time for my other nitpicks, which you guys can say whether or not you think they're legit or not. Okay, R2 units, like the one that's the fairy droid. Who Mm -hmm. the hell keeps building droids that can understand English but can't speak? Like, you need a translator droid just to talk to the, like, why? Who 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 does that? I was (laughs) so shocked by the one that, by, by that one that, because he had legs. Like he rose up and had legs. I was like, oh, I haven't seen that before. Okay. <laughs> okay. An- another droid nitpick is IG-11 wouldn't have handed the child off to Cara Dune. I just do not see that as something that that droid who was designed to protect the child would do. But maybe that's just me. My biggest nitpick, Mandalorian's face reveal. They should have just cut away. You know, I'm leaving aside the nitpick about the cleanest sewers ever that they had to walk through. But the face reveal, I mean, they did this with Darth Vader. And I'm like, okay, we can live with that, you know, I guess. But the face reveal of Mando, it just, oh, I like it so much better when we don't know that he doesn't look like an average doofus. This might be a good place for us to get ready for season two because i don't think this was 
meant exactly to be like a finale moment of like, oh, we're in the last episode and now we finally get to see his face. I think it is actually part of a larger arc that we will see in the next season. I like it better when we couldn't see his face, but okay. I'm will... just glad he wasn't like absolutely, you know, strikingly gorgeous and good looking and, and whatever. That would have been too Hollywood for me. So I'm glad that he was just an average looking guy. Actually, he reminded me a lot of Ito from Baby Cart and the River Sticks, you know, like a kind of got a dad bod thing going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, a dad face, I guess. But yeah, okay. Well, that brings up one of the last quotes of the series and one that sets up that arc for the next one. Mando gets his insignia, sigil, what do they call it? Signet. His Signet. 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 Mm -hmm. With the words, you are a clan of two. Mm -hmm. Where have we heard that before? Jeez, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Comes <Okay>. full circle. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to digging into season two because season one was so good. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I actually want to watch it all over again before I dig into season two. I am so glad that we started off this series of podcasts with Baby Cart and the River Sticks because watching the season again, having seen that, that I got so much more out of it. And I'm excited to look for more in season two. We will do that. And we hope everybody else will join us. In the meantime, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can write us at gc8podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast at gmail.com. Definitely give us a good review and star rating if you like us. I know nobody does that when they hear this little call to action at the end of every podcast, but please do it because we're trying to get heard by the people that want to hear us. And the Apple algorithm only bumps you up if you have ratings. Otherwise, you remain in obscurity on some backwoods planet shooting womp rats. <laughs> I wanted to go down to the Tashi station and pick up some power converters. That's right. <laughs> okay. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Johanna. And this is Rosie. Signing off. <laughs>